1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, how are you? Fine, how are you? How's your week been? Well... I've I've done a lovely thing for you. I've got a little something for you. From the Talking Politics Podcast and now the excellent new Talking Politics History of Ideas podcast. It's David Runciman. David, hello. Hi, Jeff, how are you? I'm so excited. Never mind never mind you, Jeff. I mean, who needs you? David, I don't mean to embarrass Ed here, but he has a serious pod crush on you. Okay. <laughs> to, to, to the extent that I'm we, not uh, just pods. We we had this we had this little tiff the other week, where Ed was just going on and on ac- across an entire day about what a lovely voice you have. And I, I eventually just blurted out, all right, I get it, David Runciman has a lovely voice, now will you stop going on about him? <laughs> I had a fit of jealousy. It's, it's very much like um, the, the photograph that you see a lot in that meme these days of the, the, the guy walking down the street with his girlfriend and having his head <laughs> turned by the other woman. Yeah, the woman's voice. <laughs> that's, that's basically Ed and, uh, and how he perceives you. Well, I'm, spe- I'm speechless. am speechless i can't I, it's all true I, i'm climbing up now i don't know what to say it's all true so, I'm, I'm just i'm just accepting it like uh, lady diana
3: <laughs> i think it's because you know obviously he's very similar to you in this respect jeff he's a very serious academic right. yes yes uh, and he's also a great podcaster i think that's the sort of i think that's the kind of unique combination something my something my dad would have admired
2: you see let me ask you a question Head. Yeah. If if we get to a point where these social bubbles become a thing where you can just have a very small number of people in your bubble will He's you be invite, bubble. will you be inviting David into your bubble?
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely. He's in the oh, bubble. I'm excited about this.
2: <laughs> just a quick question before before we ask you about a history of sure. ideas. Um, and, and I know that your wife B is a, a brilliant food writer and and she writes brilliantly about our relationship with food. Yeah. And I've been wondering about what the relationship with food is like in your house under lockdown because I've, I've been grazing like a roman emperor this end and i was wondering how it's going for you so i think
1: it's fair to say i i, I lucked out uh, we've we've been having home cooked meals lunch and dinner very very occasionally cooked by me 95 percent of the time not cooked by me and uh, i'm a healthier and happier person
2: how about haircuts ed and justine have been cutting each other's
1: hair yeah no we haven't got there yet we're food not hair in this house i'm afraid <laughs> to this point We don't. I've asked and I've not yet managed to get that done. You can see,
3: it's not growing that fast though. Ed, yours is growing a lot faster. It's lustrous, isn't it? It Somebody, somebody said to me the other day, Ed needs a haircut, and I just had one, so it's sort of slightly. So I feel the
1: opposite. I feel people should say to me, I need a haircut, and no one ever does,
3: and I I feel sad. These are crosses we have to bear. So. Tell us about the History of Ideas podcast and what motivated you to do it, because you've got the Talking Politics podcast, yeah. which lots of people will listen to, but then you've launched another one. What, what, why? It's it's partly
1: because my day job, I, you know, I teach at a university, I talk about the history of ideas, um, and now we're all stuck at home, uh, and I thought it was a chance to do it. But also because on Talking Politics, we have a sort of historical bent. We like to take the long view, but we never quite go all the way back and talk about where these ideas came from and so it was a chance to sort of take that extra step back and and do it though it's tricky because I'm used to doing it in that format that probably will never exist again which is standing up in front of 200 coughing students and I say something and they cough and then you know that it's sort of landed or not and now I'm trying to recreate that in front of a microphone with no one there.
2: What what I enjoy about it, is, as Ed has pointed out, I'm not a brainiac like the two of you. I don't have a, a PPE degree. or oh, you or anything. Are. Come on, Ed. I don't think a, I don't um, think a
1: PPE degree is the uh, entry qualification.
4: Well, I, d-
2: I don't have I don't have bookshelves groaning with uh, with with tomes about political theory and, and history. Um, and and yet I found it really engaging and and interesting. I've listened to three episodes, uh, but I don't feel like it's dumbed down. It certainly doesn't feel like a, a history of ideas for dummies either. Did you, did you have any sense of who you, who you wanted to be talking to with it?
1: So it's partly thinking of sixth formers, actually. I mean, people who are curious, maybe thinking about studying politics, maybe not, but, and the thing about politics as a university subject is people come from all sorts of different backgrounds and interests, um, to do it. But also my mum, she, she's enjoyed them. I mean, she might be saying that anyway. Uh, and the idea of them is that, yeah, I mean, I'm trying not to dumb it down. I'm trying to talk about the books and what they say, but to tell it as a kind of story. I mean, they're not actually stories, but to try and make sure that you've kind of taken on a bit of a journey through these books. Um, that's, that's the aim so that it's, they're 45 minutes each. So to keep people listening, there has to be, there aren't many cliffhangers, but there has to be a little feeling that, um, we're on a journey together. That's, that's the idea.
3: And I've listened to two, which I've enjoyed a lot, but that's one less than Jeff, um, to- Thomas Hobbes and Mary <laughs> Wollstonecraft. Um, to- talk to us about why you started. Your first one is is Thomas Hobbes. Talk to us about that. Why Why Thomas Hobbes? Yeah, so I do
1: say in that one, obviously, you could start in a hundred different places, and usually these big histories go back to the Greeks, and you start with Plato or Aristotle or something. But this is meant to be the story of our politics, and our politics, I mean modern politics. And uh The most important institution is the modern state. Um, And Hobbes has some claim to having come up with the idea, not of the state. There's always been politics and there's always been governments, but this particular version of it. And I start with Hobbes partly because he seems really strange and remote and he was a very weird guy. And yet you read this mad book, Leviathan, and some of it is really close to home, especially now, you know, living under lockdown. You read Leviathan and you think, it comes from another world and yet it's a little bit our world too so that's why I start there
2: and how many episodes are there in in this series
1: so there are 12 and I think the um I think we've got had eight out so people do have to listen to Talking Politics they do have to do that difficult thing and subscribe to another podcast Talking Politics History of Ideas to get the last 10 um and we end with Fukuyama and the end of history and the end of history i'll give you away the ending the end of history is not the end of history <laughs> no, spoiler alert <laughs> Spoiler alert. history is ongoing ongoing there are still options as your podcast reminds us every week lots of things we could do differently
3: well i would strongly recommend it david it's it's really well, thanks it's, i really i'm really it's, glad it's really like excellent it. and if you ever want to do some sort of guest presenting and you know all Jeff right has a we get of-
2: it any any issues? He's got
3: you know, a lovely you're voice. Welcome. Okay, great. <laughs> well, thank you for that um jigs. Not
2: a lot of people would in- invite a third person into their podcast partnership like that. And if you have, and if
3: you ever want to take time off, it wouldn't be the same without you honestly.
2: But thank you. I don't believe you, but I'll, uh, I'll take it. Um, what, are we going to be t- what are we going to be talking about this week? So this week, Jeff, we're talking about
3: the UK's Climate Assembly and how we can revolutionise our democracy to address the challenges of the climate emergency. Uh, this weekend, just gone, was the final meeting of the National Citizens' Assembly on Climate, which was set up by a number of parliamentary select committees last year. 110 randomly selected members of the public have been meeting over the last few months, first in person but more recently over video calls, to discuss how Britain can meet its net zero target. We'll be talking to one of the participants in the Climate Assembly about how taking part has changed the way he thinks about the issue. Then to Becky Willis. She's one of the experts that's been advising on the Assembly and has written a book about how democracies will have to change for us to take the radical action on climate that we need. And then to Pete Bryant, who is really big in the climate jury space. He runs local climate juries, and we'll be asking him why he thinks we need them in towns and cities across the country.
2: And then our cheerful person this week is Big Issue founder and social justice campaigner, Lord John Bird. And he's going to be talking about the story behind the magazine, but not just that, how we can continue to support it during the current crisis. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, it's, it's a TV show. Most of what I'm doing when I'm not doing this or childcare is watching TV. It's it's a show called What We Do in the Shadows. Did you ever watch Flight of the Concords? Um... A couple of years ago, Ed, Ed was giving some lectures over over a period of weeks in Paris, and I thought, poor Ed, stuck in Paris on his own. I'm going to do a nice thing for him. I bought him the entire series of Flight of the Concords and sent it to you as a, as a link through iTunes. I can see that you've never redeemed no, it. No, it must be just a mistake, like the iTunes chart. I think it's just a mis- mistake that you think I haven't made any vegan cheese out of that vegan cheese making kit that you made <laughs> Anyway, uh, Jermaine from Flight of the Concords and the, the director and writer uh, Taika Waititi did a film a few years ago called What We Do in the Shadows, which is a mockumentary about some vampires. It's subsequently been made into a sitcom in America uh, with, with some really brilliant comic actors, Matt Berry, Natasha Dimitriu, Kay van Novak. I didn't like it at first because I love the film so much, but I've really got into it the last couple of weeks. It's fantastic. It's really silly and sweet and funny.
3: Sounds good, actually it sounds like good escapism actually funnily enough my reason to be cheerful is is a sort of also on a similar sort of theme well in the sense that it's about what you know what we can watch during lockdown if i said jiri haji to you what would you say it's basically a, a sort of thriller set in london and tokyo about sort of rival gangs in in japan and and then it's sort of the the story comes to london and it is quite well, Justine doesn't normally like violent things. It, it does have some violence in it. But, but it's
2: the it's, kind of violence and murder and blood she can really get behind. It's more
3: like a thriller, and it's, there's, something really, there's something really quite smart and clever about it. I'd really recommend it.
0: Reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Well we're thrilled to be joined now by a participant in Climate Assembly UK. Uh, it's Ibrahim hello Hello how are you? I'm, I'm well I mean I also know about you that you are a, a GP. Um, so have you been working throughout the lockdown?
5: Uh, yes, I have. Um, we've been working, it's working in a different way. So it's all changed. We do a lot more telephone consultations and trying to triage and limit the number of patients coming in. Jeff's
2: got a couple of ailments he'd like to ask you about. The, the, thing, you, the thing is, Ibrahim, when, whenever we get a, a medical professional on the podcast, both Ed and I have a laundry list of things wrong with us. We're both hypochondriacs. But as long as I, it's not a really... rash. <laughs> I'm very conscious of your time And I'm going to try not, not to burden you with that But uh, okay. I do now have your contact details So you will be hearing from me in, in the future um, so, so you've obviously As as well as working uh, You have uh, been devoting time To the, the climate assembly Will you just tell us about that Tell us about how, how you were selected And how you've found it so far
5: I didn't know about it Until I got a letter in the post uh, that was sometime November last year and I was like initially I was like well what's this it, yeah I hope it's not like some spam thing
2: and what what did it ask of you in that letter
5: so it was a card it looked like a card with the houses of parliament on it um it just said uh you've been selected or you potentially you know um out of about 30,000 households to participate in this climate assembly um it's like winning the lottery Ibrahim yeah, I was like, oh, I never win anything. And then, I was like, okay, well, uh, why not? And,
2: and Ibrahim, like in, in your job, you obviously, being a GP, you see people from all walks of life. When you saw the other people who you're going to be in this assembly with, can you give us an idea of the range of people? How many people were there and were they from all different types of backgrounds?
5: Uh, they were 110. So and it's actually selected across all sorts of backgrounds because I was wondering how it would be. And it was just everything from different areas. So there were people from, from Wales, from Northern Ireland, from Scotland, England, uh, people from rural areas, people living in cities.
2: And how do they put you to work? Do they split you up into, into groups and give you tasks? What happens next?
5: So what then happens is you just have a gen- you First, we had the first uh, the presentations by the speakers. So that's more everyone around uh, PowerPoint presentations, some question and answer sessions, Then after that, we broke out into smaller table sessions, so much smaller, about 10 people on the table with the facilitator. And that just made sure that, you know, there are no dominant people that some, you know, I might just continue talking nonstop. So someone to say, wait, you need to stop and let everyone talk. So that was quite good. And everyone had a voice on that.
3: And how much... um, I think you're probably not allowed to tell us what your conclusions are, because it's sort of all private and confidential. It's like the jury. But how much disagreement has there been? How much has your views changed during this process? Um,
5: I think there are a lot of disagreements that happen, but most of them were actually constructive. And it's actually understanding where the other person was coming from. So... And most of the things were based on affordability. Um, People saying, well, why would I make all these changes to my home? Um, It will be really expensive. I don't want to do it. And you then have to look and look at each person on an individual basis and and see what works for them. Um, You can't have a big, you know, regional heating system in someone who lives in a farm. So there are individual cases as well. So those are where the disagreements could come.
3: And how have your views changed, Ibrahim, during this process, which is concluding this weekend?
5: I looked at it on myself, actually, because um, that's how my initial views were. Like, I was doing quite well. I I do love traveling. So I used to travel and used to, you know, go on a lot of flights and always look at that bit when I'm booking a flight. Do I want to offset my carbon emissions and things? I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, what is this? It's just somewhere to add extra money. But but then now I really think it does it has changed the way I'm thinking, everything I'm doing in my home I'm um, looking towards you know how best I can improve it, but also it's made me talk to others and see what others are doing as well so um,
3: sounds brilliant, and how has it been affected by lockdown? because of course, you know you were about what half a bit more than halfway way through this process, and then lockdown hit.
5: Yeah, so we were actually three quarters, uh, because we've done three out of the four. So it was just the yeah. fourth one. So that got split into three weekends on Zoom. So it it was different, but, but I think it's been very productive. We're big fans on this podcast
3: of the idea of Citizens' Assemblies, uh, and we, we did an episode about it a couple of years ago now, Um do you think, having been involved in the in in one, that it should have more of a role in our democracy? And and give us a little insight for our listeners about what do you think the value of it is?
5: That's a resounding yes. I think that is so so important that we get the views of people. It's democracy essentially; it's government of the people, by the people, for the people. Um, so I think with the climate assemblies, it's really really good that people come in from different areas. And so that we can have fairly similar recommendations that accept, that's acceptable to a wider range of people. And it, it then makes it a lot easier to pass these uh, laws and for people to kind of uh, go with them.
3: You said earlier that when I asked you about disagreements, that there were some disagreements, but it was constructive. You, we're used to a society where disagreements are quite unconstructive. Lots of people sort of, at least on social media, shouting at each other. I mean, is one of the values of something like this citizens assembly is that it gets people who have different views to come into contact with each other and sort of understand each other's positions better, and then maybe find a way of of, of overcoming their differences.
5: Yes, I, I, I definitely think so. Um, so I was trying to say there's a difference between arguments and um, and debate, and I think that's where citizens assemblies they f- focus more on the debates and showing the positive aspects of what you know what what you can you know what you can do and what's relevant to each person um so we're not fighting and saying no you're wrong and i'm not listening to you uh whatever you say is not going to convince me but it's to have a sort of a very positive sort of a discussion really and even though you disagree um as long as you understand why you're disagreeing and you accept the other person's uh, point of view then i think um, it makes a huge difference.
3: Ibrahim, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. That's all right. You're welcome. So I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Becky Willis, who is Professor in Practice at University of Lancaster and an expert lead of the Climate Assembly UK. She's also the author of Too Hot to Handle, the democratic challenge of climate change. Becky, thanks so much for joining us. It's
4: great to be with you.
3: So we've heard from Ibrahim about being a member of the Climate Assembly and you're the, I mean, you're the sort of, godmother is that the right way to describe it of the climate assembly
4: i've never heard it described that way but sort of
3: green godmother
4: of the climate assembly oh go on then uh yeah i'm one of four expert leads so we work to make sure the assembly has balanced and impartial evidence so we we select the speakers um and we disguise, we, we we guide the discussion process Tell us about your
3: experience of it. I mean, is it what you expected? Is it different from what you expected? What surprised you?
4: I think, you know, we'd spent months planning it. And then when I walked into that hotel in Birmingham the first weekend and I saw... 110 people there who were representative of the country as a whole. It was, you know, a a real heart-stopping moment because it's just incredible to see your own country sort of in miniature in one room and and to think that all those people are going to be helping you tackle, you know, the biggest challenge we face.
3: And what surprised you about it?
4: Not necessarily surprising, but the most striking thing for me is how what a responsibility the participants feel that they have and how how seriously they take the process and you know that really gives me faith in people's ability to to you know to think things through and to deliberate and to talk to each other and and come up with sensible answers it's it's just seeing that in practice is incredible
3: and Your book explores the relationship between democracy and the climate crisis. Tell us a little bit about the thesis of the book about why democracies struggle with acting on the climate emergency and how you believe citizens assemblies can help.
4: One of my motivations for writing it is that it's, it's really easy to come up with a list of reasons why climate's really, really difficult for politics and democracy. You know, it's, it's complex, long-term, systemic, um, responsibility's very diffuse, it you know, needs to be tackled at a global level. And, and that's all true. Um, but you can have two responses to that. You can say, it's really difficult, so let's try and bypass democracy or you can say, let's do democracy better. And I think that at least implicitly, there has been some bypassing democracy going on. I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction in the climate community to, to, to say, oh, we should just do what the experts say and hope that people don't mind. And I just don't think that's possible, let alone desirable, because we can't tackle climate change without, you know, changes to all sorts of things that people are going to notice, like transport, what type of house we live in, what we eat and so on. So I think we've got to be talking about uh, climate action that improves people's lives. And it's best if we can hear from them about how to do that. So that's why I'm you know, firmly in the second camp. I think we should have more democracy, better democracy um, as part of the way that we tackle the climate crisis. So that doesn't mean not listening to scientists or experts at all, but it means that the that, that experts and politicians should should have a certain amount of humility and, and and accept the fact that people are experts about their own lives and we can, we can have better responses if we, if, if we work with people about and talk to them about what's important to their own lives, what their values are, what their practical experiences are and, and, and we feed that in and, and, and I think that way you, you have at least a hope of getting a, a, a climate strategy that, that, that will build support and will work to um, improve people's lives.
2: And on politicians, can you tell us about the research you've done on how MPs approach the c- climate crisis and how that has shaped the climate policy we've seen in recent you years? Talk about
3: me like I'm not here, Jeff. That's fine.
4: <laughs> well, feel, uh, yeah. I mean, feel free to violently disagree with any of this, Ed. But I think a couple of things that um, a couple of things that really jumped out for me. Um, the first is, I mean, I sort of knew this already, but, you know, how how tribal politics is and how uh, the way that politicians uh, speak and act and even think is conditioned by, you know, the surroundings of, 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 of parliament and, and, and by their colleagues. And, and I was, even though I've worked with politicians for, for, for many years, I was really struck by the extent to which they, they were worried about speaking out on climate. So, you know, one said, uh, one who had spoken out said they, that they, they were seen as a freak by their colleagues. Um, and, you know, another said they didn't want to be seen as a zealot. And so they sort of paid a price for speaking out on climate. And that really surprised me. Um, and, and, and the other thing that really jumped out was that that, that, that politicians didn 't feel under particular pressure from 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 voters to to act and um, actually, when you compare it with the data around public opinion, they probably uh, underestimate people's concern about climate and people's potential support for more radical climate policy. So, you know, those those two things, the sort of worries about speaking out and the uncertainty around public support, I think really hold back uh, meaningful, meaningful responses to climate.
5: If, if you
2: think about the work you've done over the years, uh, being involved in climate policy, I know you used to run Green Alliance. How different has sitting with members of the public and and coming up with ideas been compared to, you know, working uh, with with politicians or or people uh, developing policies? Just the process of it.
4: I mean, one thing I find really useful, you know, putting myself firmly in the climate geek camp is that, is that um, people don't make the same assumptions that that you know climate geeks that that uh, political types make? To give you one example, when I was uh, when I was speaking with people who were involved in the Leeds uh, climate jury, one of them was outraged that so much money was being spent on the link road to the airport and they wanted that spent instead on um, improving the housing stock and making housing more energy efficient and you know those of us who know government would say oh no no you can't do that two separate budgets two different departments you're never going to be able to transfer the road building money but actually why not i think you know climate's been talked about in the in the technical realm you know it's always oh which technology should we choose to get us to net zero and you know how much nuclear and how much renewables and what's the balance there and i think that you know being involved in in the climate assembly and processes like that it just makes me think that that's completely the wrong angle to come at that you know at it's most basic we should be talking about what kind of life we want to live I'm sorry if that sounds hopelessly romantic but that is where people start from in their in their conversations what kind of life do we want to live what do we what you know what what do we what do we hold dear and how can we develop a climate strategy that actually makes people's lives better and it's only at that point that you then start talking about okay if that's our starting point what technologies should we be using, what should we be using, what should our economic strategy look like, that sort of thing. That's the secondary point for me.
0: Now Becky, the
3: French Climate Assembly, as I understand it, um uh it's mandated that uh the um French government is is has got to take on their recommendations, but obviously that isn't the case in the UK. Um would you like to have seen the more binding mandate? How do you think once the conclusions come out, which I believe is in rather the summer, um, how, how are we going to go about together getting them to be implemented?
4: I don't think that Citizens' Assembly should be binding. I think the point of these sorts of processes is to make representative democracy work better, to provide better intelligence, you know, a more democratic process. But at the end of the day, Parliament's sovereign and I, I I don't think we should change that. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that the French process, um, those recommendations might become law is, is through one or more referendums, which I wouldn't necessarily wish upon us. Um, but... I I think it is important and you know when we hand this back to Parliament I think it's really important to see a very clear path by which those recommendations will be taken up that's the number one thing the Assembly members are asking for so I want to see these sorts of processes as a a way of making representative democracy even more representative and particularly to, to, to include voices um that wouldn't normally be heard and to change some of those power dynamics like you know lobbying by powerful companies, which you know there's very good evidence that slows progress on climate and the more uh, voices you can hear from you know people who might not even vote is really really useful, I think.
3: Beyond the climate assembly, how else can we re- renew democracy specifically when it comes to the climate crisis? And this is obviously very relevant in this moment when, you know, we're thinking about how do we build back back better after coronavirus and and so on?
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm really pleased that as well as the National Assembly, there are um, local processes. I think um, Scotland's planning one. Um, But I'd like to see not necessarily full scale assemblies, but um, you know, deliberation with the public, I'd like to see that just as part of the normal way of doing policy. I mean, the kind of classic, you know, six week consultation on a government document is pretty deadening. And it also, you know, massively privileges those who have time and money and access. And I'd love to see just this kind of, um this this kind of participation by citizens much more of a sort of warp and weft of everyday politics. I don't know if that's hopelessly well, not possible, we're, really we're massive
3: fans of uh, what they call and, and you know citizens assemblies on this uh, podcast. We love it. Thank you, Willis. Thank you so much. Good luck this weekend. Thank
4: you.
2: And last up, we're going to speak to Pete Bryant, who is director of Shared Future, which is a social enterprise that runs citizens' juries and other participatory processes. Pete, hello. How's lockdown going for you?
6: Yeah, I'm all right. I'm doing OK, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah, it's good. I think we should have said, Jeff, at the outset that Pete is big
3: in the citizens' jury world. Oh yeah, yeah, you think? So? We were just asking Joel before we came on air. I was sure I knew Pete's name, and I did, did know Pete's name, but he is big in the citizens' jury world.
2: We always like looking at people's bookcases. You've got a lot of ring binders behind you, Pete. Are they, <laughs> they all outcomes and um,
6: details of citizens' juries? No, it's amazing what virtual backgrounds you can download now, Jeff.
2: <laughs> Well, we went to speak to you because you facilitated the uh, the climate change citizens jury in Leeds last year. Uh, do you want to tell us about what that involved and what kind of recommendations it made?
6: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so we sent out 4000 letters uh, across the city region uh, asking people to be involved. Uh, 123 people got back to us uh, through applying online or through calling us and speaking to us on the phone and we chose 25 of those people to reflect the the wider population if you like Um, and they were invited to come uh, for eight Thursday evenings and a full day and uh, spend lots of time speaking to each other challenging each other listening to each other and eventually uh, producing a set of recommendations and a statement so in that process they were uh, they heard from lots of ec- external uh, experts if you like 22 of them and they challenged them argued them before reaching this this this, this set of conclusions Now, the profile of the people that we recruited means that we had like a a kind of a mini version of the lead city region public. So we had uh, diversity in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, people in terms of where they came from, um, in terms of levels of deprivation, disability and crucially, people's attitude to climate change. I think it was five of the participants said that they weren't concerned at all about climate change but it was still important out of those 25 people that we had those those voices that were able to challenge what others were talking about.
2: And th- th- we're big fans of citizens' juries on this podcast. And, and big, big fans. Huge fans. Big fans. fans. We're, we're big real fans. converts. And, and, and since
3: Pete is big in citizens' juries, we're big fans big of Big fans Pete. of the big guy, <laughs> Pete himself. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think oh, the shush.
2: Thing, the thing that I found so exciting when we first talked about them is yeah. just how reasonable people yeah. are when... You know, they they get presented with good information and then have to thrash out a solution. Was was that your experience in this one?
6: Oh, it always is. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in about thirty-five of these over the last fifteen years, and uh, I think it uh, never fails to to illustrate to me the 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 fundamentally good nature of people and their ability to be able to listen and sit and challenge and enjoy and definitely and and what 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 is really exciting i think is that people move from arriving maybe is coming with their individual perspective their individual idea of this is what we need to do but then they're exposed we force them to spend time with each other and with people that they maybe normally wouldn't do so But by the end of it, people have moved from those individual positions to be able to identify a position that's for the greater public good. So they've understood that that person over there has relatives in Egypt, so needs to fly occasionally, but has also recognised that these people uh, that they've also spoken to might have challenges with being able to access the public transport system that's available at the moment and so on. So all those ideas are considered until eventually, you have this idea of what's for the greater public good. On the thirty-five you've done, Pete, have they all been climate, or have they none?
3: Not, not. What's
6: no. the diversity of what you've done? So we did one on fracking. We've done loads on access to healthy food, uh, uh, alcohol harm. We did one in Jersey, which was a combination of uh, survivors and the wider public to try and think about how should Jersey best remember what happened in the past in terms of the effects of child abuse there. Um, uh, how to best achieve uh, community engagement, lots and lots of topics. At the end of a process, without fail, those citizens will want to do something. So I remember I remember doing a process in uh, Blackburn, which was around obesity. And at the end of it, people were like, yeah, that was great, Pete, really enjoyed it. But but you know what? We're not going to wait for the council to do stuff. We, we're We're going to get on with it ourselves. So... Uh, what they did was they subsequently set up with the support of a local charity uh, food co-op, and uh, that later had uh, 450 families as members. So arguably transformed How the diet of that neighbourhood. How brilliant!
2: Sorry, Jeff. Now I'm just wondering about the the reasons you they're important to do on these big issues at a local level. Uh, is that? I mean, that sounds like it's part of it. Are there other reasons?
6: Well, I think for in terms of climate change, you know, a lot of our emissions are around, most of our emissions are around travel, heating, food, and a lot of those decisions and responsibilities are at a local level. Uh, I think that um, it's arguably easier to bring that diverse group of stakeholders together at a local level. So at Leeds, we had there around that table meeting parallel to the process. We had the university, we had senior politicians, we had XR, we had Chamber of Commerce, we had Yorkshire Water as one of the major emitters, we had the Racial Justice Network, all trying to figure out how best to get people to be able to talk through this issue. And at the same time, us very subtly forcing them to think about what action they can take. So it's not about just here we go. I mean, policy doesn't work in just such a logical a logical set of steps, doesn't it? It's not just going to be about, uh, we've produced this set of recommendations, council, go ahead and act on it. There's loads of other different stakeholders and actors that need to take action. And so this is about the conversation being, okay, so Extinction Rebellion, will you act? Will you make the number one recommendation that comes out from citizens, will you make that the centre of your campaigns at a local level? Chamber of Commerce, what is your response? What, how are you going to encourage um, your uh, your businesses under your umbrella to be able to respond to the recommendations?
3: And tell us a bit about what came out of the Leeds jury, uh, Pete, and sort of its significance.
6: The number one recommendation was around... Uh, private cars being a last resort of use for transportation in the Leeds city region and that the bus service locally should be taken back into uh, public control. How interesting. The second recommendation was about retrofitting of uh, properties, houses, but uh, crucially was about uh, that retrofitting being led by local social enterprises. There was lots of other recommendations, including about funding, setting up, the local authorities should be setting up investment funds to be able to help pay for some of this transformation. And there was also a controversial recommendation about stopping airport expansion.
3: And now it's for the council, but really also for national government to try and implement them.
6: Well, it's about council, it's about national government, but it's also about all these other stakeholders that we've talked about. And you know, change happens in lots of different ways, doesn't it? So um, the, the airport expansion recommendation, uh, there was some, some protesters took that upon themselves that were, were inspired by, and I guess got some legitimacy from the idea that jury members came up with a recommendation about stopping airport expansion. So there was demonstrations with uh, banners saying, listen to your climate jury, don't create more airport fury. It sounds like one of the things you think is that the importance of these events is
3: also these juries is is partly the recommendations, but also the impact it has on the participants. It sort of mobilises participants.
6: Hmm. It does. It 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 mobilises participants, um, and they go on to take action and inspire others, um, and that helps to kind of diversify the the people that are talking about a a really topical issue like this so you know people in Leeds will be able to hear people with accents that they recognize and uh, faces that they can relate to that are starting to have these conversations rather than maybe some of the more the 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 voices and images that they're more used to seeing i'm chairing one in doncaster and we were
3: uh, a climate commission sorry and um i mean we have been work trying to work out before lockdown happened how we could find a way of funding and doing a, a a citizen's jury I mean do you think every town should have one how do you expand the conversation beyond that
6: I think yeah of course I, I, I think it should happen in, in uh, at every local level and in every town I mean COVID-19 there's this space that's been created for us to be able to think about what uh, what the new normal should look like and what the future should look like and it's absolutely essential that that space is filled with some citizen led visions and we can do that through uh, through figuring out what our response to the to the climate crisis can be in a, a local level but also we should be having these uh, across the across the nation to be able to give um local politicians and, and others a mandate to take action at the same time as stimulating local conversations and if then if we start to build up this huge uh, huge amount of recommendations and local knowledge, we'll get a very, very accurate picture of what uh, what citizens are pushing for.
3: Okay, Pete Bryant, you've been brilliant. I can see why you're big in citizens' juries. It is. It's very thanks. easy to see why
2: you're the big man on the block. Uh, big man on the citizens' uh, the, jury ki- the, king,
3: the king of citizens' juries. <laughs> the czar of citizens' juries. Czar, like that. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks ever so much. So what did you think?
2: It was like an old friend coming back, wasn't it? The deliberative democracy. I think we've talked in the past about how one of our favourite ideas we've ever had on the podcast is sortition. And once again, just hearing from our guest today, it just reminds me that people, if they're properly informed and have to come up with a consensus, um, they they're they're really smart and and can be trusted and I think it's a really exciting prospect for the future of democracy i'd like to see more of it
3: yeah I was really struck by so much of the conversation Ibrahim talking about the way in which it was a way for people to resolve their disagreements in a constructive way um be- Becky Willis just about how seriously people took the process that that really struck her people taking their responsibilities so seriously and then and then sort of pete on on just the sort of you know w- what's already come out of the leads one and and also the the remarkable diversity of what this can be used for so um i suppose it just made me an even bigger fan and you know I really look forward to hearing what the Climate Assembly concludes because it's really relevant to this moment.
2: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at
0: cheerfulpodcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
2: Well, our cheerful person this week, we're delighted to have him on. He is a crossbench peer and famously founder and editor-in-chief of The Big Issue, Lord John Bird. Hello, sir. Hello there. John Bird is in the house. What's, what's the correct way to address a lord, Ed? Uh, I don't lord. know, but I... i My lord. Eminence, grace.
7: I hate <laughs> it when people forget I'm a lord. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit like... Uh, I'm probably a bit like some of those new... I think Sir Mick Jagger likes to be called Sir Mick Jagger. Uh, but where, def- where are you Lord Bird of, John? Notting Hill.
2: So do you get to choose where you're Lord of then?
7: Yeah. Do
3: you do, yeah.
7: Yeah, but you have to have some kind of connection. And my connection is that I was born there. I could not live there uh, largely because uh, once upon a time it was a, a poor slum and now, of course, it's a very rich slum you've got to be in the media to live there or you you've got to have a shed load of
2: money so so where are you spending lockdown then john i'm i'm in cambridgeshire
7: because i moved to cambridge oh god uh, about t- 10 years ago so i'm i'm having a wonderful time it's terrible because it's a terrible crisis and i'm on the bike all the time and i'm uh, uh, doing all sorts of things you know writing and painting I'm Britain's greatest unknown artist painter. (laughs) I could sell my stuff for millions, but I don't. For a number of reasons. One is because no one's asked me.
2: So we're going to talk about um, what's what been going on with the big issue during the crisis, but I wonder, um, it's been part of all our lives for so long. I seem to remember first being aware of it in Manchester in the early 90s. Do you want to just remind us of the story behind the big issue?
7: Yeah. Well, um, Gordon Roddick, who with his wife Anita Roddick, had started the body shop in the in 1976, made a shed load of money and um, developed a social conscience. Uh, I don't know if one goes with the other. Uh, and Often
2: not, I think.
7: Often not. No, not enough. Anyway, so what happened was the uh, they um, uh, Gordon was in New York in 1990 and saw a street paper, somebody selling a street paper, talked to the guy, and the guy said, um, You know, I've been in and out of the penitentiary. I'm selling this because I'm homeless and all that sort of stuff. So Gordon thought it was a good idea to come back to the UK and to try and start one for a street paper for London. Unfortunately, most of the organisations didn't want to give the homeless the chance of making their own money because they'd spend it on drinking drugs. That was the problem. Um, And, of course, I came along just then i'd known gordon when i was 21 i was hiding from the police in edinburgh and i met him in a pub and we became mates and then i hadn't seen him for 20 years and he'd become a multi-millionaire and then he asked me to start the street paper um which i did and so i started off with this kind of a hand up not a handout and that was in 1991 at um uh we started in the on the double yellow lines of the west end of London we had a special arrangement with the um with the with with the parking wardens they looked the other way because they loved what we were doing
2: and and how many how many vendors do you have today well our, our vendors are all banged up now they're all locked down
7: and well, most of them are, Uh, we've got in the region of about 1,700 that we're working with at the moment throughout the the UK. Um, Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's slightly less.
3: And, John, you've obviously been facing special challenges because of lockdown uh, and and in terms of your vendors, we'll come on to the wider homelessness situation in a sec. But tell us what you're asking people to do in relation to the big issue because that's really the important reason to have you on. What we're asking people to do is to subscribe to
7: the magazine. Um, And we've gone from about 300 subscriptions uh, six weeks ago to about 9,000. So subscribe to the magazine. And we're asking them to keep uh, subscribing, uh, largely because we are still giving half of the money, putting it aside uh, to give to homeless people who we're working with to our vendors, ex-homeless, vulnerably accommodated people that we work with. So we're asking people to go to thebigissue.com or or the Big Issue app. I've got my wife here, and she knows more
3: than I've ever known. That's a really important message for people, John. And tell us, we covered on the podcast last week the issue of uh, the way in which rough sleeping had been dramatically cut during this crisis – by the sort of necessity of the pandemic tell us what you make of that and what your hopes are for the for the kind of future well i am an ex-rough sleeper
7: i'm an ex uh beggar uh when i was rough sleeping and begging in the late 50s and the early 60s if you ever saw the police you always ran away because they'd nab you, and under the Vagrancy Act and the NFA, no fixed abode, they could take you to court and put you in prison. Um, what happened then at that particular time is most of the liberal minded magistrates didn't want to carry on doing that because you had people going in and in and in a almost kind of revolving door. So they stopped from. Pr- prosecuting and um and the police stopped prosecuting and you it looked as though oh isn't this wonderful we're leaving people alone aren't we much more liberal and kind and thoughtful but then what did we do every government since then some with um you know responded well every government delegalized de made these people beyond the pale because what they really said was we're not going to do any we're not going to punish them because they're breaking the law we're gonna say the law doesn't exist, and we are not going to take any responsibility for them. What I like about putting their our arms around the homeless irrespective of whether they have a right to public funding, because a number of them are from overseas, whether they are people who have got problems, physical problems, mental health problems, the fact that we've said nobody is allowed to stay out on the streets and become ill and die from the COVID-19 thing, that is a first. This means that for the first time, there is a compact between us and the homeless, and there has not been a legal relationship since the old days when we banged people up
3: for being vagrant and john i think you you would say that's got to continue through the crisis uh through beyond the crisis basically Uh, yes yeah that lead that contract yeah
7: what i've been saying to everybody every government uh since even before the big issue uh i was saying look you can't leave people out so human rights abuse to let people die and get hung, get ill, mentally and physically ill. Whether they want to be there or not is not the point. The point is they are not acting in their own interest, and we have to look out for their self-interest. So therefore, we have to bring them indoors. We have to put them into therapeutic communities. We have to get, uh, get the uh, support to, to, to work on getting the devils out of them that caused them to end up on the streets. So therefore, I'm a great believer of now we've done this, let's now make sure that we don't decant people back onto the streets, but what we do is we give them the opportunities and the chances that we all have of having some kind of stability uh, in our lives. And I have quoted, and I did it in Parliament yesterday, where I said that in the same way that Clem Lee, and Winston Churchill dug uh, beverage out of retirement to write up the precursors for a, for a post-war response to poverty, uh, the welfare state, we need that. We need, At this moment, we need everybody working on a game plan for what happens in three, six months' time. And I don't know that there's much evidence of the thinking people are still working in this kind of emergency.
2: Well, John, it's it's good to know you're in there making those arguments. We want people to sign up and subscribe to The Big Issue online. And what's your next painting going to be?
7: My latest painting is I'm working very much in the abstract field because I'm cheesed off with doing fine Renaissance-style stuff. I'll send you some of it. It's beautiful.
2: We'll let you get back to it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. God bless.
0: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Geoff Lloyd.
2: Well, we're in the outro.
3: And Geoff, you know, maybe you want to find out a bit more about this week's episode and the climate assembly and so on.
2: And how how would I go about doing that? Well,
3: what do you think?
2: Have you got any ideas? I think... well, I think the best idea would be to go to our website, which yeah. I'll be doing um, very shortly, uh, cheerfulpodcast.com, and I'm going to sign up for our newsletter. Good idea! Which is an incredible Bingo. companion to the podcast, but not all that. They're all manner of resources and research on the website itself. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely worth some of my time and worth your time too.
3: And look, there's a fantastic person who, called Zoe who, who works on the newsletter – and um big shout out to zoe it's really good i really strongly recommend it
2: zoe we salute you make sure you subscribe to the newsletter and then forward it on like like chain mail but make sure, uh, other but people make sure subscribe. that people are forwarding to it subscribe yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely now before we go we're going to talk about your bookcases
3: i've made it the, to the bookcase credibility um twitter feed haven't i
2: well what what, what is that for people who don't know
3: uh, it's a Twitter feed called Bookcase Credibility, where they use shots of people who've been on TV uh, with their bookcases behind them. It was quite—it's quite poetic. It was all about Poseidon. I didn't fully understand it. Here's
2: what they had to say about you. They said, "Ed Miliband brings down the credibility hammer with such force that the world begins to bend at the edges. Sounds good. No subtlety, no sly artistry. Ed is in our face and he's brought his mates. It's a tidal wave of credibility and Ed is Poseidon in his chariot, trident raised.
3: I'll take that. Don't you think?
2: Yeah, congratulations. Thank you very much.
3: Let's try and get you on it next week.
2: You'll you'll notice that I, uh, I never have my bookcase in view why is that which is mainly because because it's just shelf after shelf after shelf of books about the Beatles well that's
3: good I think that's really good for bookcase credibility now I'd like to thank our guests uh, Ibrahim Climate Assembly participant Becky Willis
2: and Pete Bryant and thanks to Lord John Bird and do make sure you support The Big Issue by uh, subscribing to them digitally Emma Caution produces our podcast with research from Joel Pearson, backup from Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Culp. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He wishes I was David Runciman. And <laughs> these have been <laughs> reasons to be cheerful.